0: Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right-of-center perspective, African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. I'm reminding you to please bookmark ACON's dot substack.com, and there you'll find links to our podcast, as well as our social media platforms, our commentary, all things ACONS. Today we have with us Professor Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry is considered one of America's leading intellectuals and economists. He is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences in the Department of Economics at Brown University and an award winning economic theorist. He has an excellent Substack and an equally excellent podcast called The Glenn Show. Uh, he is the author of a number of books, including The Anatomy of Racial Inequality and the upcoming memoir tentatively titled The Enemy Within welcome to the show professor lowry
1: hello marie how are you
0: i'm doing well thank you for being with us today
1: you're welcome i'm looking forward to it
0: we will save most of the biographical questions until we have you on to discuss your memoir but you said uh many things about your life on your podcast that are worthy of mention one is your reference to an uncle the patriarch of the family, as you call him, who said, we could only send one. We sent you. We don't see us in anything you do, end quote. Did the weight of being a conservative outlier among your family, friends, and peers become too heavy for you uh, at times as a young academic?
1: (laughs) Well, too heavy, I, I don't know. It was heavy. I mean there were there were moments like the one that you described. Uh, there were expectations about what I was supposed to be doing, that I wasn't living up to. I think some people were disappointed. Uh, a lot of people were very proud of me and and you know were willing to let me have my own views, but my views were not especially popular uh, back in the neighborhood that I grew up in with my family, even with my children.
0: You became prominent as the first Black tenured economics professor at Harvard during a period that saw Clarence Thomas appointed to the Supreme Court, Thomas Sowell named a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, Walter Williams joined the George Mason Economics Department, and so on. Why were the 80s such a fertile time for conservatism in general and Black conservatism in particular?
1: Uh, yeah, well, one thing I think was going on was the Reagan revolution. The supply side uh, is sort of intellectual uh, conservative renaissance, you know, on uh, low taxes and uh, incentives and uh, this kind of economic uh, conservatism, uh, which I think uh, many of us, uh, Williams, Sol, uh would have shared. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, the the early 80s. I would even say from the late 70s onward. But uh, another thing I think was the exhaustion of uh of the liberal argument and uh certainly with respect to black conservatives, I think the two decades after the height of the civil rights movement uh would have been a time where we could many of us could begin to see the um the limitations of that of that way of the great society you know you had a war on poverty and, and poverty one kind of kind of thinking um Shelley Steele still should also be mentioned i think as somebody who came along at that same time a, yes. not an economist but a, an important intellectual
0: in your book the anatomy of racial inequality you say Two distinct moral desiderata animate the discourse about race and social justice in America, race blindness and racial egalitarianism. How do you define these two terms and why do you argue in favor of one over the other?
1: Yeah, I argue in favor of race egalitarianism over race blindness. <clears throat> uh, that book was published in twenty. 20- You know, that was over 20 years ago. And I'm not sure I would argue in the same spirit uh, about the affirmative action question, racial blindness question, which is where that quote uh, comes from. But let me just explain it. So racial egalitarianism is based on outcomes and it's saying you have to try to achieve a more equal result. Racial blindness is based on procedure or process, and it's saying that you don't take certain kinds of information, like the racial identity of the person, into account when you when you uh, deal with them. You you're as it were looking beyond race. Um, and uh, at that time, I was you know I wanted to make the point that uh, blindness was was not the right moral grounding. That if we had a history of slavery, Jim Crow, and uh, mistreatment of Black people, and you wanted to try to say what was justice, uh, you would have to look beyond blindness. You would have to get into the substantive inequalities that existed. Today, I would argue completely differently, but uh, that was was where I was in uh, the year 2002.
0: In your book, uh, Anatomy, you wrote Quote, there may be a grain of truth in the insistence by conservatives that cultural differences lie at the root of racial disparity in the United States. The deeper truth is that for some three centuries now, political, social, and economic institutions that by any measure must be seen as racially oppressive have distorted the communal experience of the slaves and their descendants, end quote. Are you arguing here that the problems that plague African-Americans, the education gap, the relatively high rates of crime are largely the fault of others?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I kind of was arguing that in 2002, although uh, not exactly. But yeah. I was trying to say it's not just on us. It's 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 not just on them being the black folks. It's not just on we black folks. It's also uh, on on the society as a whole because of the historical entailment. And I was trying to talk about uh, a kind of social responsibility for the consequences of the past. Uh, but I again, I, I hate to keep saying this. <laughs> I wouldn't argue in the same spirit today i, I would much more emphasize the responsibilities that african americans ourselves have for our lives uh, raising our children uh, nurturing our communities affirming a matrix of values that sustains us going forward and, and a kind of uh existential challenge to uh live in good faith and and take responsibility for what happens to you Uh, and much less uh, an emphasis on victimization. But um, you you have to understand, I wrote that book at a particular time in my own evolution. I had been a, a Reagan conservative in the 80s, and then I had moved significantly to the left. I mean, it didn't even culminate in the anatomy of racial inequality. It culminated in race, incarceration, and American values. That's a small book I published out of MIT Press a few years later. Uh and in my memoir, which is forthcoming, but we're not going to talk about it uh, right now, Uh I, I kind of examined that move that I made in my life uh, from right to left, and uh, had to acknowledge that some of it was dealing with the Uncle Alfred problem, the one that you were mentioning earlier on, that I wanted to come home. You know, I wanted the folk, to say I was okay, because there was other stuff that was going on in my life. You know, I'd had a public uh, embarrassment and scandal, and I had to withdraw from a government appointment, and I was, you know, a, a drug addicted. Uh, you know, I was kind of, and then that, then I had uh, a, a rebirth and and a Christian uh, awakening and uh, a transformation in my life. And I and I think in the midst of all of that, my politics got got a little bit confused because the position that I took in that book in 2002 about uh, who's responsible for what's going on with black folk is not a position that I would be very quick to take today. I mean, I, frankly, I don't think we can afford it.
0: <laughs> it's interesting to say that I, I grew up as a liberal and came to conservatism later as a Christian, but we've been talking about that whole victimization issue. And of course, with the reparations discussion. Um, And I've been, we, there's not a school that we can't go to if we have the grades to do so. And even if we don't, right? They've waived the SAT requirements in many cases. They're talking about waiving the the LSAT. Um, And so this victimization issue, uh where is it coming from this reparations thing where is it coming from because there's nothing that we can't do there's not a job that i can be discriminated against because i'm black so you know your point is well taken
1: yeah we're in agreement about that marie um and i i'm actually very very concerned about it um that uh, with uh, Because the world is so dynamic and everything is moving so fast, we're in the 21st century, the Chinese are coming, you know, I mean, the whole yes. you know, technology changes everything, artificial intelligence is a whole new ball game. We don't have time to be sitting around talking about what we cannot do and whose fault it is. We need to be getting busy mastering the world as it presents itself to us competency. There's no substitute for that. There's no substitute right. for developing excellence. Excellence is a real thing. Getting rid of these tests is a disaster. I'm not going to preach. I could preach about this because we're talking about dignity. We're talking about true equality, not not this equity BS, excuse me, where you can hold your head up high, where, where you don't have a story. Everybody got a story about why I didn't do something. Well, you actually are doing it. Like the Nigerians are doing it. Like the Chinese are doing it. Whatever. I mean, nobody is going to come to save us. You know, I mean, so I don't know what people want. They, 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 woe is me, woe is me. We can't do anything. It's the white man's fault. And who are they talking to? They're talking to the person that they said was a racist.
0: Yes. You know, I homeschooled my three children. And I have told them that there's nothing that they can't do. You know, we were talking when my daughter was maybe 14 and she's 21 now. Uh, there was a case out of New England somewhere about a woman who sued, she was a white woman, who sued uh, the fire department or something like that because they were dumbing down the tests so that more of us could uh, advance. And I felt like saying, you know, when you're in a fire, well, she, she got very angry about that. She said, I don't need anything to come down my test. And it's true because all uh, through her college history, uh, she was on the Dean's List every quarter. So she didn't need anybody to dumb down her test. But here's the thing. When you're in a fire, Professor Lowry, are you going to look at the race of the person that comes to save you? When you need a heart surgery, are you going to say, well, no, I only want a black doctor. You know, there's there's too many white doctors here, or too many Asian doctors. I argued for the fact that we don't need that kind of keeping track of all that. We want merit. And there are a lot of us that are pretty smart. I would count you in that that club. I would count me in that club. I have an IQ of 137. You know, I'm no slouch. But education is what got me out of the ghetto. Um, And that opportunity is there for anyone who would like to do that. There are scholarships. There are a number of ways that we can advance if that's what we want to do but as you say this whole thing where you know i'm going to wait for reparations to make me rich and you know i'm gonna not advocate for myself and advance my own self
1: yeah well again we we, we are in agreement uh, about the reparations issue uh i mean there you know we could talk about Wealth gaps and things like that. But I mean, the main thing that I would want to say is I think it's really a very poor way for us as a country to, to try to look at and deal with these issues, we're going to divide ourselves into camps, and then we're going to have an entitlement based upon race. Uh, it's a country of 330 million people. Um, you know, if you talk. 10000 dollars ahead for every black person in the country you're into trillions of dollars you're going to have the whole fiscal uh framework elaborated uh based on that that's this is terrible for our country I don't know it's it's almost a kind of South Africa kind of uh uh yeah. racial classification and it, it's just not healthy in my in my opinion I mean you could say a lot of other things as well but uh I I think it's a very and, and I worry about backlash. I, I worry about the fact that you people are taking for granted the patience of the of the rest of the society about these kinds of claims. I, you know, you're going to make Donald Trump... <laughs> I don't mean to get into politics, but you're going to make Donald <laughs> Trump president of the United States and you keep it up.
0: Well, and that's the thing. There are other racial groups that have suffered throughout history. You know, so are we going to... This is... A lot of coming out of California, where they're talking about three hundred fifty thousand dollars per black person that's eligible uh, in San Francisco. But if you think about the history of California and uh, the Chinese who built the transcontinental railroad, when you talk about the internment camps in World War II, uh, there's so many other groups of people that could have their handouts as well. And California's broke, and it's not getting any broke. So this whole victimization thing, and what I had hoped with Black Lives Matter is that we would see, instead of people buying mansions, that we would see, and people painting Black Lives Matter on a street, which, you know, obviously sets the record straight and, you know, we're all good now, right? Because Black Lives Matter is on a street that you can drive on. Um, you know, I had hoped to see that we would see scholarships to HBCUs so we could have more Black uh Correctional officers, black police officers, black judges, um, people in the system to level the playing field. If you feel that the playing field is unequal. But what we've done is we've upset the Apple cart and made the pendulum swing the other way. So now we've got so many people who, you know, as I said, we're we're dismissing these tests and we're making it harder for Asians and for white people and for other people who also, you know, have the grades and the ability to withstand the rigors of a four year education at a higher institution of learning. And so it, we've just turned things around.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, the Supreme court is going to pronounce on affirmative action in higher education. And I, I think it's going to be a game changing legal uh, event but um like i said i could preach on this but i'm I'm, you know i don't know if the kids are listening you know
0: yeah yeah Readers of your Substack will often find you railing against those who are currently considered the Black intellectual elite, those who fill the bestseller list with books like How to Be an Anti Racist, How to Raise an Anti Racist Baby, How to Buy an Anti Racist Dog so 50 shades of anti-racism you know whatever go on uh what would you say uh, to one of these writers about the impact that they're having on the black community if you were to have one on your show
1: uh so you know we're not naming names but we know who we're talking about we know who we're talking the, the kind of folk that we're talking about and I, I will confess to having, you know, from time to time, allowed myself to get a little personal, you know, and say I don't think people are all that serious and everything. Uh, I, I don't want to like, you know, dwell on on that. Uh, but I, you know, I, we could talk about Ibram X. Kendi and and company, or we could talk about the people, the market, the market for that, the 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 fact that it sells, you know, I mean, Robin D'Angelo and white fragility and, uh, the whole DEI industry and, and, uh, you know, what, what the trendy people, the Hollywood people, uh, the, the Afro studies people in the universities are talking about. Um, but, uh, what I would say is, you know, we are, uh, a half century past protest, you know, uprisings. I mean, that, that's not a real politics. It's not a mature and serious politics. I say that with with respect, I know people are well-meaning and there's a cultural, not just a political dimension to it. So they're a voice, they're a cry in the wilderness. There's a, whatever, Ta-Nehisi Coates comes to mind. The uh, Kill Hunter Jones come to mind, uh, you know, the filmmaker, uh, avid DuVernay comes to mind. I mean, there are a lot, you know, there's a, in these talking heads, you know, the joy reads of the world. I mean, you know, I I, I would say y'all go ahead on, you know, because uh, you have a shtick, you have something you're selling, you know, you go ahead on, but I mean, I don't take it very seriously Is in terms of the long-term intellectual arc you know, there's there's no W.E.B. Du Bois is running around here. Right. You know, uh, and. Uh, I I regret missed opportunities of leadership, for example, I think Obama was a missed opportunity. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, changing the conversation, I mean, somebody who comes along a whole different narrative, a different narrative altogether. Uh, the Black Lives Matter, this, uh, you know, police violence is a reenactment of Emmett Till. It's lynching all over again, Jim Crow 2.0. Uh, the rhetoric, uh, I, sorry, I, I have not yet uttered a coherent sentence. I, I just have a string of uh, things that are making me sad when I think about them. You asked me about the intellectuals of the people that write these books. I was at Boston University where Eumex Kindi is a professor presenting a paper called, um, Why Does Racial Inequality Persist? <laughs> a, lecture, <laughs> okay, a lecture based upon 35 years of scholarship, okay? From a guy that publishes books like the Harvard University Press published book that you mentioned here at the beginning, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality. And do you know, with respect, <laughs> that that brother was nowhere to be found. I mean, he was not in the audience. Where having listened to me, put forward a for an hour, a carefully crafted analysis, which could be wrong. To then say, "Oh yeah, but," or other, you didn't mention this, or whatever. No, you, you know. Uh, so believe me, ten years from now. Nobody's gonna be reading that book. Amen.
0: Now what do you you alluded to this uh, about the uh, DeI stuff and uh, the American the African American studies, course. What do you think about that AP African American Studies course proposed in Florida? Uh, Governors DeSantis opposed uh, the oppo- the opposition to it and the lack of inclusive names like Lowry, Soul, Walter Williams, Shelby CEO, as we talked about earlier, uh, John McWhorter in the course syllabus.
1: Yeah. Uh, because the people who are in control of, you know, the uh, dialogue at that level, the people that uh, the, um, uh, is it the college board that puts out the, the AP, um, would consult the committees and whatnot of the academics, the scholars, the experts in afro American history, African American history are all pretty much of one mind that the conservatives don't count. You notice how they have written Clarence Thomas out of American history. Yes, they have. Here is, I don't know, you could argue people get mad at me if I say this. He's certainly one of the most significant uh, jurists of the 20th and the 21st century. Longest serving member of the United States Supreme Court. He's the Dean of the Supreme Court. He's been there for decades. He's conservative. He has a conservative interpretation of the Constitution. He could have an argument about that. They are conservatives. They do exist, and they have arguments. Or we do exist, and we have arguments. He's no less Black for that. He's a Black man. He, he uh, et etc. There should be schools named after him.
2: That okay? Where Black common.
1: kids would learn that a Geechee Gula speaking Black man from the poorest part of this country could rise to the pinnacle of the law okay the only reason that they're not is because these people who think they own our story are all on the left they racial capitalism they are they're all socialist, or you know whatever uh and uh they have, a, they have a particular, uh, we're putting out a letter, uh, Bob Woodson of uh, the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise formerly of that called the Woodson Center now in Washington, African-American conservative a leader and I. Uh, we had a, a full page letter in the USA today where we got a lot of signatories of uh, black voices saying that uh, the way that Justice Thomas was being treated uh, was unacceptable uh but we're also going to put out a letter on this uh, history curriculum thing i mean we think uh ron desantis whatever you might think about all of his whole portfolio uh, has uh done a service by calling attention to the tendentious uh, overly ideological framing of the african-american story that 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 curriculum initially uh, uh for the ap course was was elaborating and uh, we think uh, there's a different way of telling the story. And uh, I would associate myself with my friend and colleague, John McWhorter, who's been writing at the New York Times about this. Um, and you know, you could be much more affirmative. I mean, there's, there's, our, our story is not just a story of uh, domination by racist white people and so, so on.
0: You are so right about that. And that's one of the reasons why I chose to homeschool uh, because a lot of people get our story wrong. And, you know, like you said, it's the whole monolithic group think. And that's tragic because there's so much diversity of thought. uh, And it's not represented. And that does make me sad.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, again, preaching here is is a temptation. If you don't know who you are and where you come from, you you lost you don't have a chance in this world i mean so who and whose you are is 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 what you know the religious folk would say not everybody is religious but uh i i just think you can't uh, you know every fad and fancy that comes along i mean so all the uh l g b t q i a plus mm-hmm. so you you're just going to uh it it's a it's a anti-discrimination claim it's an equal claim, equality claim you you're just going to allow your narrative to be uh, I stop, I hesitate because I don't want to get into trouble over here, uh, Marie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I see you're holding I, back. You know, you know, I have to be honest with you because I get really angry too. Because here's the thing: we we see all the rights of what 3% of the population, and yet, you know, two of my children are adopted. I've said that, you know, we never accepted a dime from the government. Um, and they had some issues that we had to deal with some trauma from their first life. And that yet you see, uh, these other groups of people, uh, as we said, the 3%, or you see people coming across our border and they get everything for free. So if anybody should have gotten anything, it should have been my black children, whether they're, you know, their race is immaterial, but I say that because, you know, that's always going to come up, but when we talk about the whole victimization thing, you know, well, I did da, da, it da, and I did da, da, it. Da. Well, then why not my kids, you know, but we did it with our own money. And of course, through the help of God, but you know, it, it, it bothers me when I see this population and yet our schools are failing. And I've said, it's a civil rights issue. Uh, Our schools are failing because I am almost 59 years old and in my lifetime, I have never seen a Republican mayor of Oakland or some of these other cities where you see a lot of these issues, right? And our kids are failing, they're in these subpar schools. Um, and yet that's not worthy of a march or a rally by Antifa or Black Lives Matter. That's not something that they want to correct. You know, I'm not going to get like you. I'm not going to get in trouble. But I lived in San Francisco in the 60s and across the uh, bridge. Uh, Black Panthers had a thriving community. And I'm not going to talk about the whole issues that, you know, I disagree with about that whole movement, but they had schools because our kids were not being attended to the way that they should have. And so yet that's still proliferated because our kids are separate and unequal still. If you're in an urban school, you're going to stay in an urban school because that's how it's funded. So, you know, Cry me a river about this three percent. If you want to talk about reparations and about us being here since 1619, which by the way was we were still a British colony, um, you know, let's talk about. Still can't read. It was illegal to teach a slave to read, and kids still in our community can't read. So I'm with you about preaching.
1: Well, this is one reason to be a conservative. Although I understand I may now literally be preaching to the choir, to to the uh, choir. Which is, so this is a public service uh, the government is providing. It's a unionized uh, workforce, and they're failing to deliver. Yes. So, A, what do you do as a parent? Well, you respond by taking responsibility for the education of your child. What could be more conservative and fundamental than that? Family value of taking responsibility for raising your child.
0: But you're a domestic Terrence if you do.
1: So, and what about the what about the finances of it? I mean, uh, the huge, I mean, we're being taxed and, you know, this is a public, uh, these are uh, public employees and, uh, you know, the, the kids don't belong to them. They work for the kids. They work for the families. Right. So if they're not actually delivering, you're going to tell me I cannot avail myself of an alternative service. I can't, you know, you're not going to support me when I try to take responsibility for my kids' education. Let my people go is almost what I want to say. Yes. Uh, to that. Uh we, so so it's a, it's a scandal. It's it's a yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No. No, no, I I, I didn't have anything <laughs> further to say. I think I already said what I what I what I felt about that.
0: Well, you know, there was a school back in the Bay Area in California before I moved to Texas 2 years ago, and um they actually were funded, adopted by a corporation. So it was a for-profit and you know, when you, you know, this as an economist, when you introduce competition, it's good, everybody wins, right? So it was an interesting model, and it didn't end up being very successful. But as you said, you know, these are public servants that are supposed to be working for our children. And they're not, they have their special interests. And our kids are the losers, we're in how many trillion dollars of debt? to China. I mean, we have a, what, $31 billion, I'm sorry, $31 trillion deficit. Um, And our kids are not equipped to compete in the global marketplace. And that is unacceptable to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we agree. We're agreeing too much, Maria, I'm I'm afraid we're agreeing too much.
0: (laughs) Now, the median Black household income, according to recent data, is $48,297 a year, making us the poorest ethnic group in the uh, United States, but still at minimum richer than everyone else. How great a problem is the racial income gap when African-Americans are doing relatively well?
1: Okay, well, I've been known to say that if you look around the world, uh, the economic well-being of the Black American population is way on the uh, upside relative to other populations of African descent, uh, not to mention, you know, uh, the uh, massive uh, poor populations of countries like China and India, where still a lot of people are living in rural village settings and and they're not doing as nearly as well so we shouldn't be unmindful of that uh, but I think the, uh, the the income disparity reflects the disparity in human development uh, a disparity in the skills that people are able to offer to the marketplace and that uh, that's that's I, I would say that's a, a remnant of our history to some degree uh, But I don't think it's a reflection of discrimination. Uh, You know, they have these studies, uh, you know, you send out resumes and you get different callback rates and things like that based on racial markers. Uh, I I wouldn't say that there is no, you know, instance of a person that's being held back or being, uh, you know, poorly treated. But on on the whole uh i think you've got as level of playing field as you're likely ever to see uh in terms of the valuation right. of skills in the marketplace and the issue is the acquisition of skills we were just talking about schooling and education uh, so uh i i think there is an issue of an income gap but i think it is largely derived from the deeper problem of disparities of human development a lot of it has to do with what goes on in families. Some of it has to That's do right. with culture. Uh, not all groups are the same. If you look among so-called white people, that you'll see that there's a lot of variation across ethnicities in terms of wealth and and income. So, there's as Thomas Sola has been saying this since forever that there's no reason that you would necessarily expect um, that there would be uh, no no disparities. And if you look at certain specialized areas of human endeavor, you know, you look at athletics and entertainment, for example, I mean, you know, you see outsized achievement from African-Americans. So I'm not, I want to focus on the fundamentals. I want to build up the capacity to develop uh, skills in the African-American population. And I think that and not so much uh, worrying about income gaps is where I would want to put my attention.
0: Well, and not everything is equal. Some people have pointed out that, you know, we've got groups that come from Nigeria and they do pretty well. You mentioned uh, the Great Society and we took the father out of the home. You know, we took out half of our income. And a lot of groups that come here as refugees, they tend to share childcare duties and that we know how expensive that is. So, you know, it, there are explanations. They pull their somebody. capital.
1: They pull capital. Yes. Uh, they have niche uh, marketing and uh, service provision schemes like these nail salons and the green grocer and the things like that, where there's a lot of social capital that is at play there. Uh, they bring from uh, they're selective from the populations from which they are, originate. They're the most ambitious and yes. adventurous people, and uh, they they bring skills and 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 values. They you know tight knit families and you know all the kind of stuff that you're not supposed to talk about. You know <laughs> so, uh, I, and we haven't even talked about crime and violence. Yes, about homicide about the self-destructive, spirit, soul-killing, self-hating, you know, epidemic of behavior that is, and and the celebration of it, the the kind of covering for it, the excuse-making, the glamorizing of it. Yes. You know, star basketball player appears in video at a club at two o'clock in the morning with a pistol. What is that? you know and you can't even speak of it if i speak of you know, it they're going to they're going to put me in a old old folks home because i'm from the 1950s or something like that when i'm just talking about basic decency
0: there is so much we need to do to police in our own community you know we Don't take responsibility for some of these issues. During the whole Ferguson thing, I had a conversation with my cousin, and he was like, You know, you've got Black sons, I've got Black sons, and don't you, aren't you concerned about them? And I'm like, You know, if you're going to loot and riot and burn down your own community so that, you know, Black owned stores where you are cashing your check, you're getting your commodities or whatever. You're burning that down and that's playing out on the television every single night. And then you expect white people to treat you a certain way, you know, or the person at the uh, human resources department, if they see your resume and you have maybe an ethnic sounding name, you know, and you get passed over is it really because they're racist? I was going to I blog about this. I haven't yet. But that whole discussion, um, a professor last week or something talking about, I need mental health days because dealing with white people is so exhausting. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> if I see an ethnic name In the stack of resumes. And I'm going to think, well, she's going to want time off because, you know, we got a lot of white people working and she's going to be exhausted all the time. And I got to pay for her counseling now. You know, we shoot ourselves in the foot and then we want to blame white people. Let's take away their excuses.
1: Yeah, there's this thing. um, You know, people have a, a view about you. And the question is, do you dismiss? their view or do you dispel their view you know do you give it the back of your hand and say oh, i don't have to be worried about that that's respectability politics why should i try to do or do you as it were put your nose to the grindstone and just show your your true colors by disabusing them of whatever uh, view that they might have and you know i think too many of us just uh take the view that uh, i don't owe anybody uh, any anything. I mean, it, you know, I, I don't have to sh- approve anything. And yeah, I've never actually uh, taken that view. I've always said, well, don't take the test away. That was what I was going to use to show you that I'm a master of whatever it is that we're talking about.
0: If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Professor Glenn Lowry. He has an amazing substack that you should read and an upcoming memoir tentatively titled the enemy Within." how can our guests find you online and continue to follow your work
1: uh well i'm at glenn uh, and my uh, youtube channel is glenn lowry show youtube forward slash c forward slash glenn lowry show
0: Excellent. I do hope you will come back to talk about your memoir.
1: Okay, we're looking at early next year, 2024. So yeah, keep me in mind. I'm happy to come back and talk to you. We'll be following
0: your substack. So we'll know when that comes out. Right (laughs) Thank you so much for being our guest today.
1: Nice talking to you, Marie.
0: Thank you. And this is the part of the show where we bring in DK. Here he comes. Come on, in, DK. Hey,
2: hola. How are you?
0: I'm okay. Hola, how are you? Great. No, I'm hanging in there. I'll he's such good. a smart guy.
2: Wow. Very great. Interview. I mean, I know
0: to be a uh, professor and all that kind of stuff, you got to be pretty smart. But he's a really smart guy.
2: Yeah, MIT. Uh, he got his PhD at MIT. He went. He was a professor at Harvard. The youngest a uh, tenured economic professor, um, youngest African-American tenured economics professor. He uh, now teaches at Brown, which is another elite school, so he has quite a career. Now, um, I be, it's interesting reading his views over time because I think he admits that he began as a liberal, and then he was a, a Reagan conservative, which is like the worst kind of <laughs> conservative you can be. That's right up there with being a MAGA conservative today, Right? Or a MAGA Republican, or a Tea Party guy. A few years ago, I remember that being a Reagan conservative was was awful. We weren't the good Republicans, you know, the ones who voted for Gerald Ford and wanted uh, John Anderson and George Bush, you know, the ones who voted for Reagan. We were we were the worst, the irrational ones um he was a raping conservative at a very important time for a lot of us because yeah. as you mentioned in the questions that was the time when we saw uh not just him we saw thomas Sowell who was doing firing line and writing all these great books and we saw walter williams emerge out of george mason uh, george mason and he saw uh, shelby still came a few years later um uh, there's so many great black conservatives during that time. Clarence um, Thomas, of course. Yes. And it's very different from today where even even um, outside of politics, you know, people like Alan West and Tim Scott and others, you very rarely see uh, an intellectual come forward as a conservative conservative. Um, uh, John Mc, McWhorter starts every interview with, you know, I, I've i only voted for Democrats. I never voted for a Republican. And um, Coleman Hughes, it's another upcoming uh, intellectual, black intellectual. He also says he is not a Republican. So mm. today, this is a very different environment today.
0: Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right-of-center perspective, African American
2: Conservatives. So many of the views he had in his book, uh, Anatomy of Racial Inequality, he has uh, Backed away from over here. Yeah. He he sounded much more conservative than I expected him to be. He might be one of us again. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if he, if he would like like hearing me say that, but he might be one of us. You know, we, he might he might not be MAGA, but he's he's definitely a conservative now. So that that was a bit surprising, but I'm happy to see it. We we need well, people like him.
0: It's kind of crazy because the left is so much more so much more further to the left that I think somebody who is a regular Democrat. I mean, people say that John F. Kennedy would be considered kind of because
2: he was a Democrat. So, you know. Yeah. You know, the conservatives today, is very different than being a conservative in the 80s for sure, black or white, or any other color. It's just, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Tucker Carlson and So many people we have he has in his show, and but those aren't his views aren't exactly um, conservative views in my opinion. You know, those of us of a certain age who who came into the movement from Reagan and Luke Gingrich and um, Rush Limbaugh and all <laughs> all these other people, yeah. you know, our, our views tend to be very different, and we tend to be. You know, the dinosaurs in the room, I guess. But.
0: Well, and I think we can all relate to the story that he told about his uncle. You know, I think we all have an Uncle Alfie. I mean, I know my mom for a fact was very liberal, and we had a number of discussions. Unfortunately, she passed away uh, during the election cycle. Uh, I think she was for Hillary, and she had a friend who was for Barack Obama, or else it was the other way around. I can't remember. Um, and so we had a lot of interesting conversations. Uh, and so I think we all have family members that we just kind of straddle that fence from the way that we were raised and that worldview and coming into our own and developing our own worldview. I don't know.
2: That's definitely and then, like you said, like-
0: wanting to be liked by your family.
2: Well, uh, that's definitely something I hope he delves into more in his memoir, because it's, it's something a lot of us can relate to. Um, being a Black conservative, we're often treated as though we're betraying our race. And we yes. often get that from family members and, and our other peers, our professional peers, our personal peers. And it, it has affected a lot of people. I, there was a time when I... The Republican Party. Um, it was. I remember seeing, reading so much about Bill Clinton and how wonderful he was, and you know, I uh, picked up a time. The I first remember, black
0: president. We
2: <laughs> were picking up uh, a Time magazine. We would see the Time on Newsweek, and this photo of Bill Clinton was like a connoisseur. You know, he was he was such a fabulous man, and, and you know, all and the- Reagan was the devil. Yeah, that's
0: what I grew up with. I mean, and there's still a lot I need to mull over and reframe because just hearing his name, uh, that default is, you know, he's a bad guy.
2: Yeah, Reagan was uh, pre. It was treated much like we were during the Tea Party movement, mm-hmm. and you know, if you're MAGA today. Yep. Where 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 the extremists where the insurrectionists? It began long it began at least in 1980. You know there was the yeah. rational people who voted for Gerald Ford and and later voted for uh, uh, Mitt Mitt Romney and Jeb Bush and now we can't now we can't wait to vote for all uh, these other uh, moderate uh, moderate people uh, who run, who are going to run for president. Um, I've got his name, the governor of New Hampshire, I think he's running, he's, he's supposed to be the sane alternative to MAGA people. And, and also saying that puts a certain degree of pressure on you that maybe, uh, Professor Larry did not handle as well as other people do, but he, of course he was in the spotlight. You know, he was at Harvard university. And he was even offered a job in the Reagan administration. So there's a lot more focus on him than of me, of course. I mean, I could keep my head down and not tell anybody who I was who I was voting for. But he, he was not so lucky in that regard. Yeah. So I can't wait to read his memoir. I hope we can have him back again.
0: It would be awesome. And on that note, we are going to wrap up this episode of African American Conservatives. The Soul the conservative movement. I'm Marie. DK. Please go to our sub stack at acons.substack.com. Till next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S And also, you can support our work at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S forward slash support